Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures and what's going on in places all over the world. My name is Nosa Yari. Welcome to another episode. Today, I have yet another guest. Welcome to the episode, Daja. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. Uh, we're supposed to record this. So today is what, June 11th? Uh, we're supposed to record this a week ago. Uh, but, you know, we, I personally was at fault. So thank you for being so kind to reschedule. Uh, how's your day been so far? So far, so good. Can't complain. You know, I just got off of work. So end of a work day is always the best one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she's straight out of work, like into an interview. And of course, we're going to touch on the number of things that Daja is involved with. But she she seems like a person that never stops. Like she's always doing something. And, and she's so young. Like, uh, where, where did we meet? I think we met sometime in February. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a Black History Month event that happened at a... Was at a Denver Public Library somewhere yeah. or something, and you were on a panel that spoke about reparations. And I just remember sitting down there because you were on a panel with the former mayoral candidate Omar Montgomery mm-hmm. of uh, the city of Aurora, and. I was just like, how in God's name, like, does she know all this stuff? Like, you know, and this is not a knock to you. This is actually a compliment of you being so young and being so driven and being so about, you know, Black people and the advancement of Black people. I was just so amazed because when I was your age, like, I didn't necessarily think about stuff in that light. So uh, we're going to get to, uh, you know, what your background is. Tell me about where you're from. Like, where are you from? Did you grow up in Denver? What's your story? So I actually was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, So if anyone's ever heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre, formerly known as the Tulsa Race Riot, um, in the Greenwood Cultural Greenwood Cultural District, um, also known as Black Wall Street. Um, that's where I was born and raised, right in the heart of that area. Um, I come from a single mom background, so I definitely have a lot of love for all the single mothers out there, um, or all the single parents in general. It's hard being a single parent. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really close with all my family, um, plenty of cousins, plenty of um, uncles, aunts, you name it. I probably have some form of connection or tie. Um, but yeah, no, and I mean, I'm a student right now. I go to the University of Denver, so that's kind of how I have the Denver connection. Um, I'm about to go into my third year there, which I am super excited for. Uh, in terms of what do I do or what do I kind of hope to do, right now I am a double major in business analytics and marketing and a minor in psychology and leadership studies, which is basically a fancy way of saying my degrees are going to help me in law school because um, that's kind of where my, <laughs> my aspiration is going to be. Um, So I aspire to be a lawyer Um, in terms of what kind I'm really hoping to branch out into either criminal um, or defense law to really specialize in giving people who otherwise may not have been given the chance that they truly deserve and the the support and the care that they deserve and giving them that opportunity. Or my other kind of area of expertise when it comes to law is corporate law. Um, Granted, it's very different than criminal law, um, but I also love reading. And so granted, of course, criminal law, you do have a lot of reading, but corporate, you are definitely in the nitty gritty of everything, which I also love. So it's a little love bit. reading. That's not something you hear nowadays uh, too often. About what law school do you think about? I mean, you have like two years to decide, but what law school do you think you're going to go to? Right now, I'm I'm kind of in two different, two different realms. I'm considering Howard and D.C., 
Um, mm. I actually have a couple of friends that go to Howard Law right now and they love it. Um, they, I mean, I can't hear any better reviews from them. And like also having someone on the inside that can tell me about kind of how the law school works is one of the ways that I am picking law schools. So that's one of my list. And then my other is on the West Coast um, and it's Stanford. Um, I've always really wanted to go to Stanford. That was my dream for undergrad, but got derailed a little bit. So seeing if I can round it back out and go back to my dream school. So. Oh, okay. I guess Stanford will make sense for like corporate law if you eventually decide to go to corporate law. But don't get to, don't get called to bar in California. Either. That's it's just, just California just is ridiculous. Like I went to school in D.C. Actually, I didn't go to Howard. I went to American. I went yeah. to American. I lived in Georgetown. I had a bunch of friends in Howard and my roommate attended GW. So I kind of like was in the whole circle, all these schools yeah. in D.C. Howard is a pretty good school. Uh, if you want to go into criminology and things like that, I guess that that's an okay school. But regardless of what you choose, I'm sure you do pretty well. Don't just take the bar in California, please. <laughs> For Christ's sake. Anyway, it's, good, it's good that you, you mentioned Tulsa, um, where you grew up. And I guess this is something that maybe not a lot of people know about. Maybe some people know about. And you mentioned Black Wall Street. Um, there was actually a period in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where you had like the epitome of like black excellence, where you had uh, in a region of Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there were a lot of black doctors, black lawyers, black, like all the businesses were like black. owned. so kind of like how you have Atlanta right mm -hmm. now. But this happened like, was it 40 years ago? 40, it was actually ago? over 100 years ago. Um, so it was destroyed. Actually, the 99th anniversary just passed on May. Their massacre itself was between May 31st to May or to June 2nd um, of 1920. Um, so we just had, or 1921, my bad. So we just had the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. But yeah, no, it was, it was popping. Like you had a little bit of everything and it made up of, I want to say 12 city blocks. It was really big. Um, so yeah. And the, oh, it was, it was a place to be back in the early 20th century. Yeah. And the massacre, like I tried, like every day I find out something new about uh, uh, Tulsa. Apparently there was like a black newspaper in town and even like the library currently in Tulsa has records of what actually happened. But some of those documents are being hidden for some reason uh, mm -hmm. for people to, to know exactly what went on. But it was, it was quite, it was almost like a deliberate attempt to prevent the black race from being economically independent because that was like the heartbeat of like black economic like if we had had Tulsa Tulsa had continued for a hundred years like the generational wealth that we had we have been talking about every day would have been reality but that was like nipped in the butt you know right and yeah. it's, it's quite unfortunate that that happened but anyway uh we'll get we'll get to talk about all that fun stuff how did you get interested in stuff like this like you know about Tulsa you 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 want to study law you want to obviously help your community like you, you mentioned uh growing up in, in a single the household did that have any impact of your will to further the cause of black people in any way did you receive some kind of education from your mother or was it just like your environment that kind of thing yeah um so i want to say it's kind of a combination of both my grandmother also was a super big influence in my life um she was super big into knowing history and she's probably the reason that i do know so much of the history that i do um she loved learning about black history and she loved just being immersed in culture as a whole. Um, so when it came to knowing about like my own history, my black history, she really took the time and dug out a lot of the old history books. And she was the kind of person that if it wasn't in a history book, she probably knew it. Because um, oh, wow. she had a firm belief that was she a, a teacher? lot. No, she wasn't. She actually, well, she was my, let me rephrase that. She was a teacher. She taught second grade. 
Um, and so she homeschooled me until I was in second grade and then I went to school. Um, but for the like the latter half of her life when I was around, um, she actually didn't work. Um, she was a stay at home wife for a long time. Then she taught. Um, and then when I came about, she decided to take time off of working and she stayed at home with me. So amazing woman. She passed away a couple of years ago, but oh, I mean, she, she was one of those amazing people. But like I said, if it wasn't in a history book, she probably knew it. Um, she had a firm belief that the, uh, the history of African-Americans and of Blacks in general was not taught in the way that it should be. Mm. Um, representation, she thought, was so limited. And she thought, as a Black woman, it was our duty to carry that through generations. And so that the idea of word of mouth was also really big for her. She wants to make sure that whatever knowledge and information she can pass along gets passed along. So that's kind of where my my love for history and my love for just knowing about who I am kind of steered from. And like I said, I grew up in Black Wall Street. Or I grew up in Greenwood, which is the name of the district. Um, and so when I first started learning about it, Greenwood now is only made up of two city blocks. So um, just kind of understanding like, okay, this was once a really big area and I could never fathom, like, I don't see how this area was big. Like I, like when you come visit it, when you look at it, you don't see it. Um, but learning about- so there are no traces of, uh, wow. So they actually yeah. got rid of everything. Yeah, the only thing left standing from the original um, 1921 race massacre is a church. Um, everything else, and it's not even the complete church, it's just the basement of the church. Wow. Um, everything else was rebuilt, um, and it never got the the love and support that it needed, because it, I mean, they destroyed an entire community. People ended up leaving Tulsa because of it, and the people that were left here, um, they just didn't have the, the drive to build up what they once had, so... Let's, let's piggyback off that conversation to talk about reparations. And this is something uh, you were talking about on the panel when I first met you. So just for context, like reparations for people who might be listening is um, reparations is basically the government making atonement like financially to descendants of a specific thing, which can be slavery or, or, or anything uh, of the sort. And it has happened in the past in other instances. And it's been a continuous plight in the Black community uh, that the American government should pay reparations for slavery. So kind of like compensating descendants of slaves for what their ancestors went through and the contributions they made to building the country. Because the cotton economy, that was primarily, you know, the engine for the cotton economy was slave, was primarily like the major economy for the U.S. back in the day. And, you know, these cotton uh, farmers eventually, you know, got into like the steel industry, then got into the media industry, then their great-great-grandchildren got into like entertainment, built all these other industries like Hollywood and all these other places. They all originated from the cotton industry. And the fact that African-Americans started that industry, even when we're granted freedom, weren't like given anything, you know, for freedom. There's that whole talk about some sets of people that are giving like 40 acres and a mule and all that, but that even has, that's a whole different story. Uh, it's been something that, you know, the African-American community has been fighting for for a while. So the conversation now is why? Why a lot of people, you know, who are not African-Americans or some who are, you know, but uh, most who are not say, why do African-Americans need reparation? Why do you need reparation? That the current people who live now, like white people, they didn't engage in slavery. Their ancestors did. And you were not a slave. Your ancestors were. So why should a government more than, I don't know, X 200, 400 years later make payments for slavery? 
So why, why is that? What's your answer to that? Yeah. So I think it goes back to the idea that a lot of us are facing, like you said, it's June 11th. So, um, a lot of us are in the midst of the protests and a lot of us are in the midst of um, the racial disparity that we see. And I think the reparations goes back to the idea is that slavery is still in place just in a different way. Um, our communities have been gentrified so often and so much that what is left is low-income communities that just go through a cycle that's repeated over generations and generations that they can't get out of. Um, and let's say you get a certain amount that's still not going to help end what you need to come out of. So let's say I was born into a extremely lower class, lower, lower income home. I didn't have the, the means to get out of my situation. I see friends, I see family members that, that are going through this continual cycle. You go to a low income school, you drop out because you have to pay bills. Once you have to pay those bills, you can't afford them still. So you have to get into gangs. You have to get into groups that if you didn't have the option, this is all you got. But mm. let's say you do have the chance to get a little bit of money, you learn how to invest, you learn how to do these different these different things that are taught about in schools. And I mean, most educated people like to think that, oh, like, I'm going to get all of this money when I grow up. But like, at the same time, you have to remember where you came from. Like, for me personally, I didn't come from a lot. But I do appreciate the things that I do have. And I think the reparations are needed for people who have African-American descent because their families never got the chance to rise up in society. Um, they came from that whole idea of 40 acres and a mule, but they were toiling that 40 acres and they were giving payments to the landowner still. So what are they keeping from that? They aren't keeping anything because you still have to sustain bills. They still had to sustain their family. So they just kept going in this cycle and they still can't get out of it today. Um, most of the incarcerations, at least in Oklahoma, is made up of primarily African-Americans. And I'm sure that's across the world, but I just know Oklahoma statistics. Um, but it's just because there is that cycle, that's continuation, that they aren't able to break. Um, and sure, reparations may not be the like complete overarching answer, but it's a start in the right direction. It's at least acknowledging that something has happened. It's not looking over it and skeeting over and saying, oh, like, that was 250 plus years ago. I have nothing to do with that. But you're still benefiting from, from the society that is that occurred from that. So facts, that's just facts. My, my idea of reparations. Yeah, I mean, all facts, all facts. I mean, like you said, you know, to break the cycle, like to break a systemic cycle, you need a systemic solution. Like you can't, reparation, like you said, is just one part of that systemic solution. There are all there are other things uh, that can be done. But, you know, I had like, you know, the back in February wasn't the first time I was hearing about reparations. I, I had heard of it before, but why my eyes was open in that event when we met February was that this shit has been done before. That I didn't know. I was like, what, really? Because, you know, I'm Nigerian. Obviously, I came to the U.S. three years ago. So my experience with all this stuff is obviously different from someone like you who is African-American. And we'll talk about that. But this has been done in many ways before. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, reparations were paid to Native Americans for, you know, taking their land or stealing their land and, uh, and you know, declaring it America, you know, in the form of like casinos and things like that that were given. So an industry was given. And some people have the argument that, hey, the weed, the weed industry should be treated as such to the African-American community because we have a lot of African-Americans who are in jail today because of a product that is now legal in like mm -hmm. 11 or 12 states and is, you know, vastly becoming like, soon to become like nationally legal. Like the Jewish community, even though this wasn't from America, like the German government paid them reparations in like 19, I think, 53 with the Luxembourg 
agreements. Mm -hmm. And even the Japanese community, like I, that I didn't know. Now, Pearl Harbor, I'm sure we've all watched the movie with Ben Affleck. Pearl Harbor was a blockbuster. But what we didn't know was after the invasion of Pearl Harbor, like, the U.S. government went on to imprison 120,000 Japanese Americans because, hey, you know, we're just bombed on Pearl Harbor by Japan. Round up all these Japanese Americans, some of them who had never been to Japan before, were like second or third generation, like Japanese living in America and put them all like internment camp because all Japanese, all mm -hmm. Americans with Japanese descent constituted a security risk. They were never charged. This story is like wiped off from the Pearl Harbor. History is not in the movie. But later, mm -hmm. like in 1988, like, they paid that community $1.6 billion. Like every descendant from that community got about $20,000 or so from the U.S. government. So it has been done before. So uh, a huge reason like why you said, so it takes a, a systemic solution to break a systemic problem, but this has been done in other communities. Why is it taking this long for it to be effected in the Black community? So I guess my second question will be, and this is like the bone of contention where people have like different answers, but maybe I'll just ask for your personal view. If everyone, like we wake up tomorrow by some magic snap of the fingers, government agrees, okay, reparations. How, in what form do you think reparations would be most beneficial to the African American? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, and it, that's a difficult question because I think it benefits different communities differently. And I also want to say it may be like on a state-by-state -state basis because mm. um, what us here in Oklahoma need, um, we need the redistricting of our community. And I mean, I think that might be a problem nationwide, but... Um, and we need more, we need more education resources. All of, we have North Tulsa, which is um, pretty much the area that the ma mass majority of your African-American community lives. And I, I mean, we have- North Tulsa? Mm -hmm, North Tulsa. I mean, it's a part of the city of Tulsa, but everyone knows it is North Tulsa. I mean, there's plenty of gang activity. There's plenty of, there's, there's everything. I'll put it like that. Whatever your worst nightmares can think of, it probably happens. Um, but- that's we have the lowest income and in the state of Oklahoma, the North Tulsa area has the lowest per household income. It has the worst education per high school. Um, it has the most student teacher ratio in the state. Um, most of the students who go to a high school or begin a high school in North Tulsa don't finish it. Um, the number of I don't even know how to put this. It's the number of students and the number of people that are in the community who are one unemployed. Two, have never, will never get above an 11th grade education or will not be able to financially sustain their family because they can't find a job. Or is, it's astronomical. Like, there's no other way I can put it. Um, but when, it come, when it, your question comes back to, you know, what, what form should these reparations be? be in your in? opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, in my opinion, it would go back to an education point of view. Anyone that mm. talks to me... Um, you know that I, I will tell you I'm the biggest advocate for education because I feel like education um, will definitely help people not only better understand your history, better understand who you are, but it'll also help you get further in life because you'll know more. Um, and that's something that my family is really ingrained in me um, is the value of an education. And I think education is a big part of it, giving more money to the low-income schools. Um, but I also feel like another big part of helping out the community or giving reparations would also be just to acknowledge um, and acknowledgement would be great. And granted that doesn't solve everything and that doesn't begin to even touch anything, but there's never been an acknowledgement of the disparity that's gone through the African-American community. There's never been any kind of, this is what has happened. This is what we as the United States government 
should have done better or we should have never done at all. Um, So I think that's another aspect of what reparations would mean. Reparations can also be in the form of, let's say, you cut a check for everyone for however much. That would help so many community members and so many family members. And I think a lot of people are scared of that option because they're like, oh, this money will be used for drugs, or this money will be used for this, or this money will be used for that. Um, but I don't think that, that people... Is that just an excuse for not cutting the check, though? And I, I think it definitely could be a big excuse. But I think at the end of the day, they have to look at, okay, this may be, they may be get doing whatever, but they're paying their bills. They're going to get their kids whatever their kids need to fund themselves. They're going to be able to say, okay, look at what I didn't have. What can I give my child? And just seeing that progression is so much more than anything else. Some of those people could do like my parents did. My mom busted her butt to make sure that I had what I needed so I could go to a private school so that I could get the best education possible because she knew that if I didn't, then I wouldn't be able to do the things that I want to do and I wouldn't be able to do better than she did. Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of my idea of how reparations would work if it happened. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I agree. You know, I agree. Like a lot of people, like the first and easiest thing that people think about is just cutting a check, which has been done before. I mean, Andrew Yang kind of talked about this. It wasn't like specific to reparations, but kind of like saying like, give all Americans like a thousand dollars, that kind of thing. And everyone was saying, oh no, it can never happen. Obviously like the stimulus checks came during COVID. Oh, well, where where did the money come from? Like we all argued that this money wasn't there. And, you know, obviously the money just came out of the blues. Like that's one thing, you know, cutting a check for everyone, like, like, was done for the Japanese community in 1988, $20,000 per person. Um, they might say that's too expensive, but other options, like you suggested, like education is one thing. You know, we have a lot of historical black colleges and universities like HBCUs in the US, like those funds can be channeled into those institutions. Those institutions can be made not to charge tuition for any and every student that passes or walks through the doors, and that can be a form of restoration. It can be a form of, you know, tax rebate, tax write-off, that, oh, if you're African-American, or if you're a descendant of a slave, and you're opening a business, your first three years is going to be non-taxable because that's this is how we're using to pay you back. It can be, like, you know, apportioning land to people. Like, they, there are a thousand and one ways that this can happen, but and just to touch on the education piece, like there is, there are some people who complain that, you know, the system wasn't necessarily built for us, particularly the educational system, because me going to like a predominantly white institution in DC, I could tell how sometimes in class, like the examples that were being used, that like it wasn't just my reality. I was like, look, this is, this isn't how the real world works, like kind of thing, because this wasn't what I was used to, but a lot of my white, white counterparts in class could totally relate, because that was too like typically their world. So I always like to like, you know, insert a caveat there that there's always a difference between education and schooling. Because in as much as we want to equip ourselves with the skills to function in this system, we also need to educate ourselves just like your grandmother did for you with our history and things like that. And that's why I always like make the genuine effort. I went to an event where I met you. I have this podcast. I, I, you know, subscribe to all these blogs and things. I engage in conversation just to better. And this is me not even being like African-American, just like interested in knowing like what the history is. Mm-hmm. Now, me, and I feel me, like more people should do that because mm-hmm. there's not a lot enough people that are like all of our activists today, I think have, have really spurred that movement and that conversation to really make sure that history is acknowledged and, and people are learning about not just what is learned in those history books, but people are taking the time like you to go out of their way to look up information, to, 
to be more knowledgeable just about the world that we live in because that's just not something that you see in day-to-day society today. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And going back to this reparation talk, do you know one thing, like one problem I personally have with the whole reparation issue is the lack of unity, which is like a bigger issue, I guess, in the Black community. Even where I'm from, like I'm Nigerian and we're not like typically unified against like bad government or anything like that. So I I don't know if it's safe to say like it's a general problem, but we do see it like prevalent in a lot of spaces in the Black community. It's difficult for us to come together. That's why like what's happening now with the Black Lives Matter movement is so refreshing because like I don't think I've ever been like in my lifetime seen where we're so united as a community and have so many allies from other communities even joining Mm -hmm. us in the struggle. Do you think talking about reparations that we have a responsibility in this fight for reparations because if we're just telling the government or our our other counterparts that hey we need reparations we need reparations we need reparations don't you think they can lowball us and say okay do you know what everyone get i don't know a free zoom subscription for a year and that's it like don't you think we have a responsibility to organize and like come in our numbers and really iron out what it is we want and present that to the government and start negotiations because that's what like the jewish people did or if we're not together like if they answer us there's a high possibility that they'll lowball us and like 50 years from now we start to say that wasn't enough but like oh yeah well you, you know and if we end up getting reparations for not united like those things you mentioned earlier that we might end up like squandering this money, that how do we then channel that capital deliberately to create black industries? Like, do you think we have a responsibility to do that as black people? I I do think that we have a responsibility to figure out what it is that we need. And I think that that's going to be a difficult question. That's going to be a difficult thing for anyone to do because like I said, there are so many different and unique needs per state and per, per community. And I think when it when it comes to the idea of, okay, let's all narrow what all of us have, you have, oh, I don't even know how, what percentage African-Americans make up of the nation, but you have this large percentage um, of individuals that, that need to be, that need to get reparations. And some of them may be on one end of the spectrum of, I am dirt poor, I don't need, I need everything, like from clothes to food to shelter, I need it all. But then you have people on the other side of the spectrum that's like, okay, I'm comfortable where I am and I can help the community that I came from. Um, And so I think that people on that end of the spectrum, they're the ones that may not have to have the same issue of, oh, I need to educate myself. They're already educated. Um, So their situation or their reparation may have to come in the form of something else, whether it be, I don't know, a check or an acknowledgement in the history book or something compared to the person who has nothing. Their, their reparation needs to be in the form of something that they can actually grasp onto and, and help themselves. Um, so when it comes to that, I do think they have, like all of us as a whole has a responsibility to get together to figure out where are our spectrums, where are our ends? Because if we don't have a very low of the low and we don't have a very high of the high, how do we know what that in-between is going to be? Um, So I think that in the terms of coming together, yes, we definitely should. And we definitely should be a unified body when it comes to presenting the information to the government. Because if not, then we are going to get lowballed. We're going to say, okay, here's $100 for every person. Like, that's not enough. And I don't think without coming together, that'll be a problem. But I think trying to garner enough energy and enough movement, at least right now, I mean, we are in a time of, of, 
I'm not going to say societal collapse, but we are in a time when change is happening mm-hmm. and change is happening rapidly. Uh, and with that rapid change coming together as a whole and coming together as a unit, that's going to present enough data and enough information to the government. I don't think at this very moment is going to be possible because we need to just, we need to get the bare minimum for, done first before we can, we can go any farther. Cause right now, I mean, they're killing us in the street. So before we can even present a document to a governor or before we can go up to the Supreme Court of the United States, or before we can go any farther, we need to make sure they're not just going to shoot us on the walk to the store. Right. So right. That's, just, that's my little spiel about it. And I agree. You know, the problems are different. Like, you know, a lot of people like black people are not a monolith. But, you know, like like you, you, you rightly mentioned, like we might need some form of unity. Like you can take the Black Lives Matter, for instance. Like I don't think the Black Lives Matter, it doesn't appear to be like a unified, structured body that says go and everyone goes. Like everyone, it's there. Like the founders of Black Lives Matter, the three black women who founded the organization are there. But everyone identifies with that. Now, mm-hmm. they might have like a subset of Black Lives Matter in like Oakland who do their thing, a subset in California who do their thing. But like everyone identified there. These like guiding principles that might not necessarily be spelt out, but we know what we're fighting for. So maybe something in that sense. And like you said, it might be a state-to-state affair or something like that. But, you know, the more or the sooner we come together, maybe the better it is to make our case for reparations. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me also ask this question. Me being African, me being Nigerian, West African, like, do you, what do you think about like the unity between, I'm still on the topic of unity between like Africans and African Americans? Cause it hasn't like, like if we're being totally honest, like being, we've never really been like on the best of terms. And I've been scratching my head to know why, like I haven't been in this country for that long, but like, I don't know what I was expecting when I came here, but like, it was a shock to me. I knew about racism. I knew about all that, but I didn't know about by between the black community, given like Africans and African Americans. Some people say, oh, they're not, you know, you hear things like, oh, I'm not, black and I'm not African and black or I'm not black and African, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. There's this divide that, oh, your ancestors didn't go what we went through and, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just jabs back and forth. I really don't know where that came from, but but do you think it is important that, you know, uh, African Americans here connect to, and even like black people globally, like connect to identify like with the motherland? And do you think Africa, like the development of Africa has a role to play in like this reparations talk? I mean, I think, I think Africa does have a does have a role to play, especially like Africans. And I mean, I also agree with you. I don't know where the, the animosity and the and the hatred or whatever you want to call it lies between African American African and African Americans, because honestly some of my best friends are from Africa. And like I just I mean, we've had this conversation, we've had this debate for times and times again. And I think it at least from my understanding and my point of view, it comes from a lack of a lack of knowledge of one another, um, mm. which I think comes from everywhere everyone kind of has a lack of knowledge for one another and like how one culture is differs from the other and like how how even within the whole the, the whole african-american community like i may completely feel like from tulsa this is how african-americans are this is what we do and then from atlanta they may have a completely different different definition of what it means to be african-american um so i feel like just that that lack of understanding, that lack of knowledge for another one's culture is where the, the divide comes from. But I think in terms of Africans playing a part in like either receiving or being a part of reparations, um, I honestly think they do. I mean, if you look, you look in, let's say a white person walks through the room, they walk through the door and they see you and me next to each other. They're going to say we're both black. I mean, that's, that's going to be the first assumption. They're going to say those are two black people sitting in there. 
they don't know the difference that we both come from different backgrounds. We have different cultures. We have different ways of thinking. Um, so if that's anyone's first assumption, then you will also, you also have my problem. You also, you also understand what I have to go through on a day-to-day basis. Um, and because of that, I mean, I feel like they're like at it, to an extent, like you also have dealt with the systematic racism that goes through today's society. Just because you weren't born here, just because you don't, you didn't grow up here in America. I mean, you still see and still face some of the same implications that I would face walking down the street because no one's going to talk to you first. They're just going to say, they're going to look at you and your, your vision and the way you look is the first thing that someone's going to notice. Not, Oh, like, let me learn more about their culture. Let me learn more about who they are as a person. They're just going to say, that's a black person in the story, in the discussion, let's move on. So, I mean, you, you hit the nail right on the head there. You said, you know, a lot of us don't have knowledge about the other. And this goes both ways, you know, Africans for African-Americans, African-Americans for Africans. Like it boils down to my previous argument I was making about education versus schooling. Like, mm-hmm. Education is different from going to school. Like you need yes. to educate yourself. I've never been like me personally. I've never been one who likes school. And that does not say that I'm not smart or anything like I. I got good grades and all that good stuff. But like whenever I get into a school, and this was right from high school, I always like, my father always said one thing. He always said, don't just pass through school. Let school pass through you. So a lot of people just go to school, focus on the academics. So that I'm all about the extracurricular. Like what can I learn? You know, from this thing. That was why I came to the U.S., not primarily because I can't get the same education in other countries, because I was interested about the cultural education and other things I could get from the American university compared to like the, you know, just education on the basis. So I I was deliberate about, oh, you know what? I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to talk to people from all these different backgrounds. I've talked to people from like 46 or 47 different countries. Like I want to know about where you come from. I want to know how you see things. I want to dispel and break down some of those bridges. So maybe that's something we need more of on a systematic scale. How do we get to start educating people? Yeah, we have the media, we have videos, we have, you know, things like that. But how do we ingrain it into the family system where people like your grandmother, people like your father can sit their family now, tell them about history, tell them about, you know, relations with other races. How do we make people travel more? How do we make people like expose more just to increase that understanding with other races and cultures? I don't know. Do you have any ideas? It's a very loaded question, but I don't know. Maybe your grandmother should answer this one. I mean, honestly, I, that is, it's such a good question because I, I don't even know where we would, where we would begin. And like, I know for me, at least and the people that I know, a lot of a lack of a lack of wanting to be educated comes from a idea of fear. Like I'm I'm scared of what I'm gonna learn either about myself or I'm scared what I'm gonna learn about like how similar, how different I am from a culture. And just if I if I don't relate to what my culture is supposed to be, does that mean I'm not a part of the culture? And like the imposter syndrome is definitely real and trying to figure out your place in society and where where you fit in and where you don't fit in. So I mean, that might be a part of it, why we don't don't educate ourselves more on history and just just things that aren't taught in school. But at the same time, I, I really don't know. <laughs> got it, got it. Let's tone down from the reparation talk a little bit. Let's, let's talk about you a little bit. So you said you're a sophomore at the University of Denver, and I want you guys listening to this to understand that Daja, the, what, how, can I ask how old are you, or should I edit that out? No, it's okay, you can definitely ask. I'm 19. Yeah, I mean, she's a very young lady. Like, when I was 19, like, I was doing a bunch of stuff when I was 19, but it was more like, oh, how can I? I think, like, I was, like, we're, like, running a magazine or something. So it was more like, 
I knew nothing about history, but I was like, okay, let's get to the money. Let's like build ourselves. Let's do things yeah. like that. But I knew nothing. It was only till I got started getting older, like I started thinking about things like this. But you're 19 and already thinking about things like being on the panel with like mayoral candidates and things like that. You're just in your sophomore year. She doesn't just talk the talk. She walks the walk. Mm -hmm. She participated in an event where I met her. She's currently in the University of Denver and she participates in student politics. Uh, is that correct? So I think you're the Yeah, I'm actually... I say, yeah, I'm the student body vice president, so... Yeah, she's a student yes. body vice president in a predominantly white institution. I mean, I know I've gotten admission from the University of Denver before. I didn't end up attending. I mean, I went to the orientation and all that. When I looked around, I was like, ah, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's neither here nor there. That was one of the reasons. Let me not just knock uh, DU like that's only. But they're they're trying to, you know, uh, promote more equity and all that. But she walks the walk. Uh, so that I just want you guys to understand this young lady. We should expect bright things from her in the future. You're also a member of the Delta Zeta sorority? Yeah, I'm part of Delta Zeta sorority. That's Zeta. correct. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've always been interested in sororities because, you know, it means something totally different where I come from. Like when you mentioned like sororities and fraternities mm -hmm. and frats and things like that. Like maybe I've always been looking for like the president. Maybe you can introduce me to like the president of your sorority. Let's do like a dedicated episode for American sororities because all we know about Greek life is through movies and, you know, mm -hmm. stomp the yard for black sororities and, you know, mm -hmm. bro culture for white sororities and all mm -hmm. that. Can you briefly like explain from your point of view what Delta Zeta means to you, why you chose to join yeah. that organization and what you hope to achieve with it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I come from a, let me just preface, I come from a long line of people who were in a sorority. So my mom was in a sorority and um, she went to Grambling State University and she was an Alpha Kappa Alpha. Um, so what university? Grambling State. Grambling State, a, got it. It's an HBCU. Yeah, um, the ones with the, they have an awesome drum uh, yes. program. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and she was an AKA there. And so it's a historically black um, sorority. And I mean, she loved every minute of it. I always went to events with her and I loved every minute of it. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then coming to the University of Denver, which, as you said, is a predominantly white university. Um, what kind of led me to choose my sorority, which is a primarily white sorority, uh, was the fact that the girls in the sorority are so, they drive to have a better understanding of the world around them. Um, yes. So granted, it is a predominantly white sorority. We have the most diversity of any sorority on campus. Um, so there's me, there's a couple of girls from India, there's a couple of Asian Americans. Um, so we kind of have a, a big diversity standpoint, which I really appreciated. And like, I truly felt like the girls, they took so many stances to actually understand, not only educate themselves outside of what they learned in school, outside of their assumptions, but they took the chance to understand what it means to have people of color in their sorority and how their, their actions speak louder than their words. And so it can mean one thing to say, oh, we have these girls in our sorority, yada, yada, yada. But it's another thing to say, you know what, they are our sisters. So during this Black Lives Matter campaign and everything that's going on, they have actively done donations. They've taken donations um, to get towards the Colorado bail bondsmen um, to make sure that the protesters are out of jail. They, nice. six or seven of them went through and they made kits for the tear gas. Um, so they're the kind of people that I felt like didn't just talk the talk, but they walked the walk too. Nice. Um, that's kind of where I, why I joined the sorority that I joined. Um, 
but everyone's experience is different. So that's just mine. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was just curious. And like I said, you know, I might have like a dedicated episode to really explain like the history, like what they do, the inner workings, talk about the hazing situation, which I think a lot of people don't do anymore and all that good stuff. But that's on a different episode. But let me ask you this, Daja. So you're this uh, young, strong black woman, you know, speaks so well, uh, educated, is on her way to law school, uh, has a history from Greenwood, from Black Wall Street, from Tulsa, is educated about the history of Tulsa. When are you running for governor, man, or mayor? <laughs> uh, mayor of Greenwood? Are you going to start from there, or is going to be like <laughs> the governor of Oklahoma? You know, man, I mean, I don't, I don't see myself being in any kind of government. Come on, man. We need more people like you. Like, who else is going to... If we don't have someone like you, like, representing, like, the interests of Black people, who are we going to, you know... I mean, I will be, but I will be the activist. You can see me. I mean, you clearly want to participate in government in some way. Like you in one form that. of another, yes. Yeah. I w- in one form or another, I want to participate in government, but I don't think I can ever have the the aspirations to be a mayor, to be a governor, to be a senator. I just, personally, Obama I don't see myself. Obama said the same thing when he was in Colombia. He said the same thing. <laughs> I, I just don't see it. Maybe one of these days, someone will say, you know what, you need to be a senator and I'll... I'll take it and I'll run with it. But right now, I just, I don't see myself going that rec- direction. I I think the main reason, though, is I don't, granted, they do have an impact and they do have a large impact on communities. I don't feel like I'll work enough with the community. Um, I feel like I'll be so far disconnected um, that I just, I won't get the chance to do like the one-on-one that I want to have in the community. Oh, so, so that's just no, kind of no to corporate law, yes to criminal. <laughs> is that likely. the answer? <laughs> I mean, more than likely, that is probably going to be the answer. But at the same time, <laughs> I mean, you still have a couple of years to decide mm-hmm. on both fronts. You have a couple of years to decide before law school. You have a couple of years to decide if you can change your mind on running for governor. But regardless, like I'm really impressed. I mean, we hadn't known each other. We don't necessarily know each other. I just met you at mm-hmm. an event, approached you, and say, you know what? I loved the way you spoke on the panel. Um, uh, I have a podcast. Can you do this? And you agreed. I mean, just watching you from afar, it's really, really inspiring. The fact that you're 19, it's like my mind is blown. I'm 31 and I don't think I'm, I'm doing the things or I have done the things, half the things you've done, like in the community front. So I just want to appreciate you for that. I don't know how, how often you get to hear that, but thank you. Uh, anything you choose to do in the future, whether it's a, a, a senator or governor or president and in that line, uh, you can count on my support regardless of where I am in the world at that time. Uh, I'll definitely, because I feel like um, you walk the walk and not just talk to talk. Um, yeah, before we end the interview, I always like to give people a few minutes. Uh, if, the, if there's a question I didn't necessarily ask and you want to address, if you want to say something to your future self, if you want to like drop some gems, you know, dish out your social media, whatever it is you want to do, you, you kind of yeah. like have the rest of the part. Awesome. I mean, I won't take too much. I mean, anyone can feel free to hit me up on Instagram at Deja.Brooks. Um, I mean, I, I'm an open book. I will talk to anyone. So if anyone ever has any questions, feel free to let me know. But I mean, I guess my closing remarks are going to have to be to make like, I want people to take this and take the key takeaway of being educate yourself. Um, don't just, don't just listen to what the school books say. Don't just, don't just leave things alone and say, Oh, I'll get there later. Cause later is going to come way faster than you think. Um, actually take the time, even if it's a chapter a day for a week, like get, get the time and take the time to educate yourself. Um, if it's not your history, on a history that you find fascinating, on something that you 
you really want to learn about and that'll take you so far. Um, I mean, I, I've enjoyed talking. I don't talk a lot normally, so this has been a lot for me, but I mean, it has been a wonderful time. And like I said, make education is key for me. So I hope education is key for everyone else. Black Lives Matter. And if anyone else says anything against that, then they obviously are not your friend because if that bare minimum can't be met, then where, where are you going to go from there? So that's all I have to say. <laughs> exactly. Well said. Well said. Education is different from schooling, guys. Like, take the time to educate yourself. Take the time to educate yourself. I can't stress that as often. Like, it's different for everyone. Like, some people enjoy reading books. Some people, like, want to learn from podcasts, from media. Some people have to have, like, experiential education. So they have to go places, you know, interact with people who don't necessarily look like you. Like I said, it's important to know your history, but it's also important to know the history of others. So we can build that tolerance and know how to move in these streets. So thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Daja, you've been a wonderful guest. You guys can follow the podcast, this Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Uh, Culture Class Pod on Twitter. Uh, besides that, Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Tell us what you think about our new logo. I think we have a logo that's like two years old now. So uh, what do you think about that? Hopefully we get to like be more serious about the podcast as we approach our two-year anniversary in November. Maybe we'll start doing more videos and things like that. But this practice started as a hobby and it's kind of like spiraling out of control but we'll see thank you daja of course thank you